You're listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Daum, now on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. I don't like the phrase the N-word because it's, it's, I think it's infantile and infantilizing. It's it's like we're we're on the playground and there's a magic word that nobody can say. It's like Voldemort, you know. So I refuse to use that unless I'm referring to it because it just feels to me like first of all I'm I'm saying that I can't handle hearing a couple of syllables strung together no matter what the context is and by by using it you know, for the for the sake of other people, I'm I'm saying the same thing about them. They they don't have the capacity to understand context. They don't have the capacity to understand intention. And I'm going to pillow this thing before I give it to them because they're so fragile. They're so weak. I just think that's in, that's incredibly offensive. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host Megan Daum. My guest this week is Angel Eduardo. Angel is a writer, musician, and a visual artist based in New York City. And while his name might not be familiar to you yet, his story, or more precisely his perspective on the current cultural moment, might strike a chord. Angel first came to my attention last summer with a response he wrote to the infamous Open Letter on Justice and Debate, a statement that appeared in Harper's Magazine addressing a climate of growing intolerance for ideological diversity in academia and many cultural institutions and media outlets. This so-called Harper's Letter was signed by more than 150 people, many of them quite prominent, and one of the criticisms was that it amounted to a bunch of elitists whining about having their voices muted by the democratization of opinion. But Angel, a 35-year-old millennial with immigrant parents, a day job, an artistic output still pretty much under the radar, saw things differently. His article, which appeared in Aereo magazine, was entitled, I'm a Nobody, The Harper's Letter Was For Me. In this conversation, Angel talks about why he wrote the article, why the new leftist groupthink reminds him of his religious upbringing, why he thinks fetishizing the N-word does more to incite racism than fight it, 
and also a rhetorical concept he's come up with called star manning. Just a heads up, this interview also features some cameo barking appearances from my dog, Hugo, who was not a signer of the Harper's Letter. Here's my conversation with Angel Eduardo. All right, Angel Eduardo, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, yeah, I've been um, I've been following your work for a while, and uh, I've been wanting to talk with you. I guess you first came to my attention last summer, in July of 2020, with a piece in Aereo magazine called I'm Nobody, The Harper's Letter Was For Me. <laughs> I want you to talk about that piece, but I guess first we need to explain what The Harper's Letter was. Uh, it was an open letter a letter on justice and open debate, I think was the official title. It was basically just a statement, a very general and frankly anodyne statement about um, the demise of, or, you know, not the demise, but I think a sense of imperiled free speech, particularly in academic institutions, people being uh, censored and censured over something as minor as tweeting something in praise of somebody else who might be considered problematic. Anyway, we can we can talk more about that. It was signed by 153 people, m- many of them very prominent, Salman Rushdie, Noam Chomsky, Margaret Atwood. I signed it. I was among the more famous signatories, as people know. But uh, so it was it was pretty controversial. It shouldn't. Have, I was surprised at how controversial it was, actually. And one of the criticisms that was lobbed was that it was for it was just a bunch of like privileged, established people complaining about um, not being able to say what they wanted to say or something like that. And I thought your piece, in addition to being extremely well articulated, was really necessary because you actually stood up and said, well, no, actually, the reason (laughs) the reason that these people are speaking is because they are able to because I somebody like me cannot speak up as easily. So so tell us um, what you meant and what led you to to write and publish the piece. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is such a dream. Uh, I'm a great admirer of yours and of the podcast. Oh, wow. uh, I listen thank to the podcast you. all the time. Yeah. It, it was really strange because I saw, I'm a big admirer of Thomas Chatterton Williams, and I saw him tweet out the piece when it came out, the the letter which is three paragraphs. I mean, yeah, it actually blew my mind, the, re- the response to it, because I saw it, I clicked on it, I read it, took me two minutes, and I thought, oh, wow, yeah, this is great. I retweeted it. And, then, and then, then the blowback started, and I couldn't believe the, the tone of it, and I couldn't believe all the different interpretations of it, because it seemed so clear. And, you know, it's anodyne, as you said, you know, it could have gone mm-hmm. so much further than it did. And it's, Right. In its argumentation, in its tone, even just it could have been far more strident and I still would have agreed with it. But, you know, what ended up happening is I started getting into discussions with people on Facebook and on Twitter where they just had these crazy bad takes about it. And they seemed completely to miss the point, even though it was pretty explicit. And, you know, a few days of frustration over that prompted me to want to write something about it. And I just, I pitched it to Ario. They, they responded, I think within 15 minutes and they said, yeah, go for oh. it. And so, <laughs> Well, tell us actually, actually, before we get into that too much, 
Sure. Let I mean, let us know who you are. How old are you? You know, where are you? What's your identification? How do you uh, identify uh, in the world <laughs> generationally uh, and otherwise? I'm pretty sure I'm a millennial. Okay. Pretty sure I'm. I'm 35. So all your friends, all your all your cohort was angry with you. Yeah, many of them. Yeah, many, many, many of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a writer, musician. Um, I do some photography and design work as well. Uh, I'm a staff writer for Idealist.org, the nonprofit job site. Um, we do a bunch of other stuff too. And yeah, I just, I've always wanted to communicate. That's the crux of my motivation for everything. My art, all my music, everything is really just trying to communicate ideas into the world. And so um, this was just another thing that I felt compelled to do. And I was, I was really afraid of doing it because, you know, we're talking about cancel culture. The, the Harper's letter doesn't mention that term. No, it does not. Which I think is smart especially because of how, I mean, the concept creep is really crazy on that, but focusing more on the idea of being censorious. But yeah, I was, I mean, I was afraid to write what I wrote. And that's, you know, the first thing I could think of was I'm terrified to write this. And that was the first line of the piece. And it was true. I was worried about losing my job. I was worried that, you know, people would try to come after me and, like, as I mentioned, you know, they, Ariel responded within 15 minutes or so. Um, they said, yeah, that sounds great. Go for it. And then I knew that it was timely. I knew that I had to really get it out quickly. And so that kind of kept me from ruminating too much and freaking myself out. And so I just kind of wrote it mm -hmm. and, uh, I submitted it, I think two or three days later and then it was too late. I couldn't take it back. I couldn't do anything about it. I had to just sit there and wait. And yeah. So what is it? about your life that has put you in this, I mean, I really don't like to use the word woke. I think it's been weaponized and overused. And I agree. It's, it's just really, it's insulting at this point to people who actually care about this stuff. But right. I mean, you are a person of color. <laughs> you are, uh, you know, you, you could, uh, us people might look at you and assume that you are on a sort in on a sort of social justice uh, track intellectually and right. otherwise. So, um, you know, tell us like what kind of education have you had? What kinds of work experiences have you had? What is your job now that you are afraid of losing if you've spoke out? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I'm East coast education, you know, just public school education. Um, New York city. Yeah. Yeah. New York city and New Jersey. Uh, I went to school to on my undergrad in Jersey city, Jersey city university, which was wonderful. Um, and that's, it's funny because I didn't, it never occurred to me, even though I've been writing my entire life, it never occurred to me that you can do that as a profession. Nobody, nobody told me. And it literally never occurred to me that the people who put these books out, that's what they decided to do with their lives. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I didn't think to major in writing. I was a psychology major and then, uh, I just took a bunch of creative writing classes on the side and then picked up the minor on my last semester there when somebody finally broke the news, Hey, you can do this, you know? Um, and then I ended up getting my master's at Hunter College for creative writing. Um, so that's, you know, the, my educational pedigree, but personally speaking, it's, I've just never fit in. I've always been kind of, you know, the square peg, no matter what I tried to do. And so I've gotten pretty used to not gelling with my cohort, as you, as you mentioned, you know, I was always into the music that my teachers were into. 
And I was always into the movies that my teachers were into. Like I never really got into the stuff that was on the radio or, or that people were getting interested in. I was always kind of weird that way. So, you know, it only makes sense that the wokeness stuff, for lack of a better term, would also just not jibe with me. I, I never fit into my ethnic group. You know, at school, the Spanish kids, that's what we called them. You know, they were into other stuff. And, you know, even though there were obvious commonalities, you know, our, our family history, our background, immigrant parents, all that stuff. We had all this stuff in common, but we still didn't gel because I was just, you know, I'm listening to Queen and Led Zeppelin and they're, you know, they're, <laughs> they You're don't even Gen know. You're Gen Xer and Hart. Right. They don't know who, they don't even know who that is, let alone like it when they hear it. And also, you know, I had a religious upbringing and that didn't work for me either. You know, I hated going to church. Your parents are from the Dominican Republic, just so we know. Your parents yes. are, they immigrated from the Dominican Republic. Okay. Yes, yes. My parents immigrated from Dominican Republic. Um, I was born here, but it was very, you know, first generation American immigrant parents type thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I never liked church. I, I went to Catholic school for a couple of years. Didn't like that either. Just didn't. I just, you know, contrarian, asking questions all the time. I was a problem for everybody. So, <laughs> so, you know. In the last few years, when this, you know, social justice type stuff started coming up and this, you know, all this stuff about race and all this stuff, you know, I just kind of, it felt familiar. And I was like, eh, I know a religion when I see one. And this is, this is reeking way too much of that to me. So I immediately was recoiling and it just gets worse and worse. But, you know, for the, for the, the Harper's letter thing, I just really felt that this was important, an important point to make that the the worst take there were many bad takes but the absolute worst take that i saw was that that you mentioned that you know these are just privileged people they're annoyed that they're finally being you know taken to task for for their bigotry and their all the horrible things that they want to say that they used to get away with saying and i just thought that was absolutely crazy and they explicitly you know the letter explicitly says that this is what the point is it's that you know, we have the opportunity, we have the capacity to speak up for the people who are being silenced and you don't even know who they are, which is me. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just a guy. I work at a, I work at a nonprofit. You know, I, I very much want to contribute to the discourse, but I don't have JK Rowling money and I don't have JK Rowling clout. So if someone comes after me and tries to destroy my reputation, tries to vilify me by smearing me with, you know, labels that are of awful things, I probably won't be able to survive that. And that was the point of the letter. And that was the point I was trying to make. So what kinds of interactions do you find yourself in where you feel like you can't say what you want to say? I mean, I read something. I can't remember if it was in this piece or in another one. You talk about being in your MFA program and somebody talking about being surprised that there were poor white people in New Orleans or something like that. Oh, yeah. It was actually worse. It was it was. Okay. De delighting in the fact that there were poor white people in New Orleans. Right. So like, when did you start to notice this? Because mm. what did you say? You're 30, you're 35. Yeah. How, okay. So I mean, cause I always, I always sort of put this around 2014, 2015, that this started to get really acute. I was yeah. noticing it online, but I mean, were you noticing this in your life, just day-to-day -day life? Prior to that? Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about this recently, and I think I pinpointed the exact moment when I realized that this was something that was 
going to happen and it was going to get worse. Uh, I was having a conversation with someone who's younger than me, I think just getting into college. This was a few years ago. I can't remember exactly when, but it seems like 2014, maybe a little bit earlier. That's That sounds about right. But yeah, this, this person was just getting into college, uh, studying film. And I was asking him questions. Oh, what, so what are you, what are you thinking of doing? You know, what's, what are you interested in? And the phrase I remember this person saying was, it's going to be woke as fuck. And, <laughs> and the, the way that this person said that and the way that they clearly wanted it to land struck me. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, I've heard that a little, I heard that a few times before that word. And I've, I've heard the, you know, rumblings of this sort of thing before, but that was the moment where I thought, okay, this is some kind of new dogma. This is some kind of religion and it's going to be a problem. This is going to be bad. <laughs> and they were talking, what was going to be woke as fuck? Some event that was happening or what was the subject? Yeah. They were talking about what sort of film projects they were going to get into. Like what, what was the the impetus for them doing film and, and the type of material they were trying to create and what its intentions were. And, you know, it was very social justice oriented. Like I'm going to make movies and documentaries that are going to do this. And yeah, woke as fuck was the phrase. And I just heard that and I thought, okay, this is bad. <laughs> yeah. Because what did you associate it with? It just, it sounded so familiar, just the way that this person said it and the way that, yeah, the way that they expected me to respond to that, there, there was an assumption there, uh, just this certainty that I know what's right and I'm going to force it on everyone else. And they don't feel like that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing. And it just, it felt very, very dogmatic to me. I just, yeah, it, it's When hard. you say was, familiar, what do you mean? You mean it felt like? In terms of like the religious aspect it felt very much like I was speaking to a parishioner or, or a, a freshly converted, you know, born again. That's what it felt mm -hmm. like. And for some reason, that moment was when that clicked for me. And I thought this is, yeah, this is going to be a problem. And, you know, a few years later, John McWhorter just nailed it with the, this is a new religion. And I thought, aha, I knew it. I was right. right. <laughs> so were you feeling alone in this swirl, like, do you, are you someone like me who just started watching, uh, watching John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry talking to each other on blogging heads and oh, yeah. finally being like, oh gosh, okay, I'm not crazy. Or what was your awakening? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm so thankful for people like John and Glenn and, you know, Coleman Hughes and Thomas Chatterton Williams, all these people, Chloe Valdery, for also existing and saying the things that, you know, I felt so deeply and thought so you know, so much because there were moments in the last summer, the, this past summer where I was, you know, quite honestly, just sitting there like in tears because I was so frustrated about how the conversation was going, what the conversation was about. Um, I think I, I, I touched on this a little bit in that piece about the Harper's letter that I just felt so like an alien, you know, people at work asked me, you know, how are you feeling? Because my job is great. The people at my job are wonderful and they're very supportive. And uh, there was a lot of conversation around the Black Lives Matter stuff and, you know, all the, the protests and, and the riots and, and, you know, all that stuff that was going on in the summertime. And, you know, they really cared and wanted to know, are you okay? How's it going? Everyone was asking everyone that. And 
I honestly, my, my answer was, yeah, I feel like an alien. I feel like, I feel like everyone else is crazy and I'm just sitting here going, why are you all so insane? You were at least able to think that they were crazy and not, and not you the other <laughs> right. way around. Cause sometimes I yeah. think I'm crazy. It's, it's like, am yeah. I in the, am, am I in the fishbowl? Am I in, in the fishbowl looking out or am I outside the fishbowl looking in? This yeah. is, I think Katie Herzog put it that way. Right. So, I mean, what were the kinds of feelings you were having? I mean, let's be a little specific here. So sure. you're, you're watching what's going on with the protests, with the response to the George Floyd killing with Black Lives Matter. What was what was frustrating you the, the most? All the rhetoric. I mean, just the oversimplifying the situation, oversimplifying the narrative, you know, not taking things into account that are clear and obvious facts that, you know, takes two seconds to look up. Like, you know, like what, for instance, for, I mean, getting into how many people are killed by police every year, how many of those people are black, how many of those people are not black, how many of those circumstances are different from one another. One thing that I wanted to add to the piece that I just didn't, I didn't figure out how best to do it, but I saw I once saw someone I know wearing it. They had, they had posted a picture of themselves and they're wearing this t-shirt and the t-shirt has the names, you know, of Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, you know, a few other, a few other, you know, Sandra Bland, a few other people, Michael Brown. Oh, I've seen that shirt. It's like a list, right? It's a vertical list. Yes. Yeah. So it's just a list of their names, right? Without any kind of context, because the context is supposed to be obvious, right? These are all... Black people who were killed by the police and it's wrong. And I stand for, you know, I stand against this, which of course you do. Right. But part of the problem that I had with that t-shirt that, you know, that was another moment where I see that and I think, okay, I'm an alien. I don't, I, I feel like I'm the only person who is looking at this and thinking the, the thing that makes sense, which is every single one of those scenarios was totally different, right? Every single one of those people were in a totally different situation. The circumstances were different. The police officers in question were different. They behaved differently. And, you know, they were at different times. Some, and even, you know, for, for example, the case of Trayvon Martin, that's not even a cop. Not all the cops were white either. Right, right. But none of that is evident when you just look at this shirt with all these names on it, right? So it's, it's that sort of thing. It's this, it's this oversimplification of the narrative this kind of dogmatic insistence that this is the way this is, and this is what we must do about it. And if you're not with us, you're against us automatically. And I've always been that person to say, well, hold on a second. Let me, let me think about this. Like we're going hundred miles an hour and I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting whiplash. Can we stop for a second? And that always frustrates people. So that's, that's how I was feeling. And then when the Harper's letter came out and people were responding that way, I guess it was the last straw for me. I guess something snapped and I just thought, I have to say something, finally. You mentioned that piece about when I talk about my grad school experience and stuff. And that was something that I wanted to write for years, but was too afraid to. And I, I only wrote it finally because I, I just got tired of being afraid. And the same thing with my my piece on the Harper's letter. I just... Even though I was scared, I just thought, well, I mean, I have to do, I have to do that. I can't. Yeah. They're going to come for me anyway. Right. (laughs) So I'd rather be up against the wall with my principles intact than having completely just abandoned them, you know, just give, give my principles away to these people. And then they're going to put me up against the wall anyway, because that's just inevitable. Cause I mean, you, you are in a great position. You're young, you're, you know, (laughs) 
Latino man, Latinx, I don't know how you oh, <laughs> talk, no, think about the grammar of that when we get into that. But, um, <laughs> you know, conceivably, you could sort of package yourself as as a wokester and have a pretty lucrative career. I mean, we see people doing this all the time. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the climate is there. Uh, so, you know, what kind of career have you or did you or do you want to have like as a writer did you want to be a fiction writer where you want did you want to be a journalist like how how had you sort of set yourself up um professionally before all this started to emerge creative writing mostly i'm chugging away at this memoir that i've been writing it was the subject of my mfa and yeah i mean i love fiction i love poetry and I would love to write essays about, you know, all kinds of stuff, but it's just, it's like so many people that you and I both admire. They just seem caught up in this thing where they have to keep talking about this because it's in the way of everything else. It's preventing us from just relaxing and, you know, let me write this, you know, let me write this essay on, you know, this philosophical, philosophical concept or, you know dogs or something, you know, like, but we can't do that because it all seems trivial in comparison to this insane climate that we're in and that we have to address and do something about. So, yeah, I want to circle back to that in a, in a minute, but let's talk about the response that you got to the piece. I was looking at the comments to your Harper's letter oh, yeah. piece. I was looking at the comments. I mean, I would say, I would think like about 60 to 75% of them were in your favor. That has to do with the readership of that publication, which I don't know. They're they're kind of a free think uh, right. outlet, um, but you know, you certainly have those people in there who were saying the the things you see a lot, like why are you bringing this up now? You're overreacting. Why why does it you know when there are babies in cages and you know men are dying at the hands of police? Why are right. you whining about this? So like, what what did you make of the response? And did you find yourself engaging with the? the readers or you just kind of step away? Um, I engaged a little bit, <laughs> uh, very much to the chagrin of many of people, many people close to me who were just like, just leave it. Don't do it. But I wanted to try. And I guess we'll get into a little bit why I feel that's so important. But um, one that I remember pretty clearly is someone, someone retweeted it and said, this person is upset because they can't criticize Black Lives Matter as much as they want to. And then they they fired off a list of complaints. And because that was a substantive critique, it wasn't just, you know, I hate this guy. I thought, I'll respond to this. And I responded to each mm -hmm. point in a, in a thread. And I said, hey, well, you know, with respect, I've, I, think, I think you're misunderstanding what my point is. And, you know, I, I addressed every single one of their points. And <laughs> it took me four or five tweets. And I, I did a draft so I could make sure that I worded everything really carefully and took my time. And then when it was ready, I just fired them off in a quick thread in response to them. Super respectful mm -hmm. on purpose and just addressing the points and, and just kind of leaving the, the ad hominem off to the side. I didn't even respond to it. And I got, I got a three-word response from this person, which was just, fuck off, <laughs> inactivist. <laughs> so inactivist inactivist right was there a comma was it fuck off comma yeah inactivist fuck off comma or fuck off inactivist oh okay yeah. all right well at least it was punctuated <laughs> right yeah 
So I left it there. But I figured, you know, that was worth doing anyway, because the person's response showed a lack of desire to communicate. But mine showed a very clear desire to communicate. I would have gone all day if if they had responded differently. And actually, you know, on, even on the Aereo website, the comments underneath the piece, some people were really, really critical. And then other people jumped in and it turned into a kind of chat room sort of back and forth with some people. And I addressed some things in, in great detail. And some people actually turned around. Some people actually said, you know, you know what? I hadn't thought about that. You're right. So, oh, I mean, all in all, even though I was really scared to write this piece and to have it come out, I would say then it was a net positive for me. Um, I got so much support. So many people reached out to me through DMs and through my website, just messaging me, just literally just thanking me for writing it because they were also scared and they, they felt the same way, but they're worried about their jobs and they have families and they can't take that risk, you know, so... So regular people were reaching out to you, not just the, yeah. the John McWhorters and Jonathan Case oh, no. of the world. You had, no, no, yeah. no. Yeah. I got a few retweets from prominent people, but the vast majority were just normal people saying, you know, they've got 10 followers on Twitter. Right. But they reached out and just saying, hey, thank you so much for writing that. I feel the same way, but I can't say it because of this and this and this. And, you know, I mean, it was really heartening, I have to say. Yeah. And I I was seeing people saying, well, this doesn't, this, you're exaggerating. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I think in fairness, a lot of people just are not aware right. that this is happening. They're, they, they're not in an academic institution. They just have this sort of life, you know, they're, they're not on Twitter all the time. I mean, I think that's <laughs> a huge factor. If they, they're not online a lot, they don't happen to work in the sort of job where this would come up. It could be conceivable. It could be easy. It could be admirable and uh, something worth aspiring to, to be completely oblivious to this, all that's going on. But you link in the piece to the Twitter thread um, that is kept by uh, somebody that the Twitter account is called Everything Oppresses. And uh, <laughs> this person has been keeping a running list of examples of, quote unquote, regular people who have been quote unquote, canceled due to these forces. So just, you know, if anybody's listening who is still, you know, doesn't exactly know what we're talking about, I mean, I'm just going to list a few examples. NYU cafeteria employees fired after preparing a menu in honor of Black History Month that was deemed racially insensitive. Let's see. A yoga studio was so woke that they had gender neutral bathrooms and person of color yoga nights where white friends and allies were asked to, quote, respectfully refrain from attending. Um, but they ended up actually getting closed down. So that that's an example of being hoisted on your own petard, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's see. After a woman posts a Facebook video explaining why she does not support Black Lives Matter, she not only lost her job due to a deliberate campaign to have her fired, but continued to be targeted afterwards and ended up having her GoFundMe fundraiser removed too. Okay. The Palestinian business uh, that was wrecked because of some very ugly tweets that the owner's daughter had written seven years prior. Uh, this was in Minneapolis. Um, so, you know, this goes on and on. There are hundreds and hundreds of examples of this. And so I, I think sometimes people think that like this only happens to people who are very high, high profile anyway. And, you know, right. that, that it's like Louis CK and, yeah. uh, you know, people in Hollywood or, you know, JK Rowling, but it's really, 
it doesn't matter. I mean, if people like us get canceled, it's no fun. But it's it's what's amazing is the, how quickly this has um, sort of morphed. This has jumped from academia to media institutions like the New York Times and NPR right. to like some random accounting firm somewhere yeah. where someone's going to get in trouble for something they say in the break room. So right. like what kinds of things were people telling you? Well, yeah, mostly just, you know, they work at some insurance company or some of them were academics actually, but some of them just work regular jobs, just, you know, absolutely regular office jobs, you know, some company that makes such and such or whatever. And they, and they can't say it because they'll, they'll be reported to HR and it's, you know, and I think one thing that must be highlighted is the fact that, you know, this is happening now in the places where it's happening in the exact right time frame where that you would expect from when this was happening in academia. So, you know, we're talking about four or five years ago was when this was running rampant in school and everyone was saying, oh, this is just school. They'll get over it once they graduate and go into the real world. You know, they'll, they'll be hit with reality and they won't be able to uh, sustain this nonsense. But of course, look at what happened. You know, they graduated, they enter the workforce, and now it's infiltrating the workforce. So it's actually no surprise. I mean, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianov with their book, people should have paid more attention. Maybe we could have nipped this in the bud, but. I mean, where do you think it comes from? Do you think it comes from the faculty who have become steeped in intersectional theory? I call it misapplied intersectional framework because intersectionality in and of itself is a perfectly valid uh, lens through which to look at things. Right. I agree. But uh, I mean, what is your diagnosis? Is it, is it the nature of who is teaching these students? Is it something about the psychology of these, the, these cohorts of people growing up combination of all that stuff? Yeah. I think it's a confluence of a lot of things. I think one thing is just how they're being educated, what, what is being put in their heads, but it's also just that youthful desire to change the world. Everyone's got that fire in them when they're 20, or most people do. I know I did. You know, you want to change the world, you're strident, you are, you know, you're dogmatic and your youthful insistence that you know exactly how to do it. Um, you want to tear down the systems that are harming people. You want to burn it all down and rebuild. There's that that youthful energy. So there's that. And there's also, I mean, a big thing is just the lack of a better ideological framework for so many people. I mean, religion, religion is all but gone for young people, you know, for the vast majority of young people, nobody's buying into that stuff, but it leaves a hole that people need to fill with something. And unfortunately people are filling it with politics and they're filling it with, you know, these, these ideologies that have very similar tenets and very similar mental frameworks. And so they're just kind of operating on that stuff. It's bad software to run for those purposes, but that's what they're doing. And I, we need to come up with better alternatives. And what are they getting out of it? This is a question I ask a lot. And it's funny, I have I have asked it in the context of women um, looking at their exp female experiences through a grievance-based lens. Mm -hmm. There's a certain currency that can be uh, dealt in, obtained 
through doing that. Um, you know, and so I have, I, I ask a lot of my guests when we talk about various kind of phenomena in the world, like what, what are people getting out of this? And I've gotten accused of saying, well, you're not allowed to ask that question. If somebody's from a marginalized group or if somebody has been harmed in some way, you're not allowed to ask what they're getting out of it. And like, <laughs> I ask myself every day what I'm getting out of whatever, like, you know, rant I just <laughs> right. unleashed on somebody. Uh, hopefully not <laughs> online, but somebody, you know, yeah. in my midst to right. just get used to it. But I mean, yeah, like, is it, does it just feel really good? It has to, right? If it felt terrible, I, I don't think as many people would do it. But I, but that's not all. I don't think that's all. And by the way, I, I'll, as somebody with more melanin than you, I can give you, I can give you a pass. You feel free to ask that as much as you want of anyone you want. Ask them what they're getting out of it. Go ahead. And then if they give you any guff, <laughs> just refer them to me. Okay. I have heard of this thing where you can get a pass. I was hearing about like <laughs> high school students using the N-word, like the white kids right. can ask a, a, a black kid for a pass so they can say the N-word yeah. one time, uh, which seems like a bad idea. So ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah, but don't even ask. Like, it, yes, it's ridiculous, but I, I wouldn't even ask for a pass. At well, we can get into thing. the N-word. I, I don't use that phrase. I, I, Yeah, it annoys me, but we can get into that if you want. But um. In terms of what they're getting out of it, I mean, that's the thing, is that I think there is a performativity to it. I think that there is a currency to, you know, victim status. But I think that the vast majority of people really just believe what they've been told and what they've read and how they're seeing the world. They believe that there is rampant injustice, and there is, and they believe that there are structures in place that are meant to to maintain that injustice. And they believe that what they're doing is helping the downtrodden. They believe that they're helping people who need help. They believe these things wholeheartedly. And they what they truly, deeply want is to make the world better for these people and for everyone. And they're going about it the way that they know to go about it. I think that's the majority, that people are genuinely and earnestly just trying to do the right thing. They just happen to be wrong which is just the case for most people. Most people happen to be wrong, but they, they mean well and they want to make the world a better place. You know? And I, I feel the same way. I feel for George Floyd. I feel for all of these people. And I, I want so badly to fix these problems. The, the, the issues come up when we start to figure out, okay, well, what actually is the nature of the problem? How does it actually work? What's the best way to address it? All these things get complicated. And it gets more complicated when people attach their identity to a particular method for solving a problem. You know, when you're, this ideology is tied to who you are, when these ideas are tied to who you are, it becomes difficult to talk about them, it becomes difficult to criticize them. And that's what I mean by the dogma. That's what I mean by, you know, I've seen this before and it's not good. We have to separate these things. You know, it's interesting because Barack Obama was really... I felt like that was a, an inflection point where a lot of people, at least a lot of white people, mm. started saying, well, we're in a post-racial moment now. Like, right. he was able to be somebody who was furthering a certain agenda or showing a certain sensibility without it being race-based. I mean, I, I do think that a lot of white people loved Obama because he made us feel good about ourselves, even if it was subconscious. Like, oh, look, here's a black guy who, you know, is the proverbial Volvo driving NPR listening uh, 
you know, upper middle class, professorial sounding wonky nerd. Uh, And if that can be a black guy, yay for us. Uh, We don't have to feel guilty anymore. And let's move on. So I think that was that was a sort of simplistic, visceral response that was that was seductive, but perhaps not obviously not as sustainable as we we thought it was going to be. But then on the other hand, it's like, you know, his messaging, he I thought his his Obama's Cairo speech on race was brilliant. I think it was one of the the, the finest, uh, you know, pieces of discourse on race that I've ever heard or, or read. Um, but I wonder if like a lot of the people screaming on social media now about critical race theory are even aware of it, could even metabolize it. I mean, uh, Obama is a sort of persona non grata uh, for a lot of uh, extreme leftists at this point. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about all that. Yeah. I mean, you know, Obama's a smart guy, obviously. And I mean, the thing you said about, you know, having Obama's election mean something in that way, those things are true, right? The fact that we could get a black president, even though he's only half black, right? blah, 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 blah. But it still matters, right? Because a hundred years ago, even half black was too black, right? And it just never would have happened. And I mean, you know, you, you brought to mind, there's a, there was a show, I think it was on IFC, it was called Iconoclast, where they would just put two notable people together to spend the day and have conversations. And one of the episodes was Maya Angelou and Dave Chappelle. And it's a great episode. Find it if you can and watch it. It's wonderful. Um, Maya Angelou is just amazing. But, and so is Dave Chappelle. But um, there was a moment where, you know, they're having this heart to heart and Dave Chappelle says, you know, like, I hope, I hope that I live long enough to see the first black president, right? Or, or that my children live long enough to see the first black president. That's how far away from reality this idea was in his mind, right? Wait, what year was this about? It was probably, you know, maybe 2004 or something like that, right? Okay. So I'm guessing, but it was, you know, obviously it was before Obama came to prominence. And so just a few short years later, it can't be, it must be less than five years from when Dave Chappelle said those things. We suddenly have a black president. We suddenly, we made it happen. Look at this. It's amazing. To the point where, you know, it was inconceivable in his mind that he might even be be alive to see it. And not only was he alive to see it, but he was alive to see it twice. And that means something. That matters. Um, and I think that, you know, as Steven Pinker mentioned, one of the things that's one of the problems with progressives is that they're so hell bent on denying progress. You know, it's 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 strange. And, you know, then and then there's all these weird these weird twists that they that people do to get to, you know, squirm out of these things. Well, well, he's not actually black or he doesn't act black or all these crazy things. And yeah, I mean, I respect Obama a lot. He's a super smart guy. I don't agree with everything he's ever done or said, but I really admire him for having having the the capacity and and just the resolve to say, "Listen, you guys got to stop being so sensitive all the time." There was that that speech he gave to a, college, a bunch of college kids. You can't be so sensitive all the time. We we have to be able to talk about things. We can't this is this is not a good road to go down, you know. I admire him a lot for that. And he's he's gotten yeah, you know, persona non grata, as you mentioned, he's he's gotten a lot of guff for it, but it's frustrating. It's frustrating, Megan. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so let's talk about the N word since you brought it up. Okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
If you use it on this podcast, maybe I'll, you know, we'll get a big spike in a negative attention, but it will uh, boost rating. So I, I'm not, no, we just. <laughs> I was about to ask because just out of courtesy to you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to get you into. into uh, well, actually, so this is interesting, but what would happen if I let you say it, would I still get in trouble? Depends how generous people feel like being. <laughs> I mean, the thing with this podcast is that I, uh, most of the people who listen to it are, are inclined to like it. It's still in this nice boutique phase where right. it's like people, it's not being, it's, it's not on everybody's radar screen to the point where people who, who don't like it have it shoved in their face. So, right. but, uh, uh, you know, let's, so let's just, obviously we've had this, um, meltdown at the New York times in the last month over, yeah. uh, Donald G. McNeil, the uh, science reporter who was there for 45 years who uh, used the word in context with a bunch of wealthy white high school students on a trip to uh, Peru. It, it was sounding like the the New York Times uh, kind of wanted to get rid of him anyway, uh, and we're looking for an excuse. That's often the case with, mm-hmm. with these things. Um, there's also the case of Mike Pesca. I don't know if you followed this one. So he's the Slate oh, yeah. uh, uh, reporter. He has a podcast. Um, he's a great, it's a great writer, great thinker, great podcaster. Uh, and he was discussing on a Slack channel, I guess, if you know asking the question if it was ever appropriate to use the n if if a white if it was ever appropriate for a white person to use the n word uh, in the context of talking about its use and he didn't even use the word he just said n word and he is oh my suspended God. from slate now so uh so where are you on this and do you consider yourself like latin latino hispanic what do you consider yourself racially um the honest answer is that I don't really think about it very much. I just am what I am. And I, you know, I, obviously my culture matters to me and all that sort of stuff. I love, you know, I, I speak Spanish. My family is, you know, Dominican and I love the culture. I love all that stuff. I identify with it as a, an individual human being, but I don't walk around thinking I am a Latin male or a Hispanic male. The word I grew up, I grew up using was Hispanic because that's just what I was told was the correct word. But it's been more and more confusing lately. I don't know where, where I'm supposed to be. Uh, Latin X, I think, is insane, and I refuse it categorically. Uh, <laughs> it's, I call it lexical imperialism. So you're coming in and you're taking my savage language and you're forcing it to conform to your ideals. Right. And, and putting X on the end of anything, I'm not really sure what it, what it signifies other than uh, you're on the right side of history. It's just yeah. sort of a way of uh wokeifying any given word right like could you say like dog x or canine x <laughs> i was wondering that the other day i think the x is because of the gendered the gendered language thing right. the o and the a making things masculine feminine and we don't want to get yeah. into the gender stuff and so we'll just put the x there and just spoil everything for everyone but yeah so that's how i identify so, and, okay but i mean you know there's a blurry line there because depending on who you ask you know, I I have a pass because I I'm part of the group. I have a pass because I'm close enough. You know, it it really depends. But I don't use I don't use words like that in my general day to day thing unless I'm quoting somebody or referring to the word. Just because it's not how I speak, it's just not my manner of speaking. So I, I didn't I didn't really get into hip hop culture and all that sort of stuff where it became 
you know, in that context, it's, it means something different and people use it differently. Um, so I'm not in the habit of doing it, but I don't like the phrase, the N word, because it's, it's, I think it's infantile and infantilizing. It's, it's like we're, we're on the playground and there's a magic word that nobody can say. It's like Voldemort, you know? So I refuse to use that unless I'm referring to it because it just feels to me like, first of all, I'm, I'm saying that I can't handle hearing a couple of syllables strung together, no matter what the context is. And by, by using it, you know, for the, for the sake of other people, I'm, I'm saying the same thing about them. They, they don't have the capacity to understand context. They don't have the capacity to understand intention. And I'm going to pillow this thing before I give it to them because they're so fragile. They're so weak. I just think that's, in, that's incredibly offensive. So I, you know, I avoid the word in general, but if I had to say it, I would just say it. Uh, so there's that. And I wrote another okay. piece for Aereo called Words Don't Hurt, Ideas Do. And it's making this distinction as clear as I can possibly make it because I'm so sick of having this conversation with people. Like, no, 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 you don't understand. There's a difference between the messenger and the message, right? And I try to, I try to make this explicit. And there's the case of uh, Greg Patton at, at USC where he was giving a, a lecture on filler words in his business class. And he used the Chinese word nega, which is like the equivalent of um or something like that. And he said it right. three times. Three times in succession. And, and, you know, it was being recorded. Somebody reported it and it turned into this entire fiasco. And the context was absolutely clear, right? Everyone knew what he was saying, why he was saying it. They knew it was in Chinese. And there's no etymological relation between nega and the word nobody likes, right? And, <laughs> and he got in trouble anyway. Because a white person saying something that even sounds like the word is close enough to get him burned for it, right? And there are implications there that I think people don't pay attention to. So we can't even have someone say something that sounds like it. When people make this argument, what they're saying is that the word itself, those syllables strung together, conjure up some kind of evil, which is crazy. You know, it makes no sense. And we know it makes no sense. Because when Dave Chappelle says it, nobody blinks, right? So when Dave Chappelle says it, when Kendrick Lamar says it in his, in his music, nobody blinks, nobody bothers. Why? Because the context is, well, that's a black person saying it, so it's okay. All right. So that means you care about intention. That means you, you understand context and you understand intention. You understand the difference between the uses of a word. And what you're really saying is, we want to refuse any context where a white person says anything that even remotely sounds like it. Okay, if you want to make that argument, you can, but at least recognize that that's the argument you're making. Don't pretend that this person was being racist by simply saying the word, regardless of context. I'm kind of riffing here, but that's the gist of the of the argument there. Yeah, and that it requires um, a complexity of thought that you know I feel like in the past a seventh grader could have probably entertained but yeah. for some reason is like too it's it's a heavy lift now for uh, any adult right. even a lot of ostensibly highly educated adults and again like I, I don't know if that's a performance I don't know if they really think that like when I see people yeah. on Twitter a lot of them have PhDs uh sort of going through the motions of being hurt and harmed by a scenario like the one you just mentioned, like, 
again, I ask myself, do they really, are they really hurt and harmed? Or is, is there so much reward in, in pretending to be that they're going to pretend to be? The performance is its own reward. I think it's both. I think that there's definitely a performativity to it, especially from non-Black people who are, you know, jumping into the fray and doing things on other people's behalf. I think there's definitely a performativity to it. But I also think that there are people who really are wounded whenever they hear that word, right? And I'm not discounting the harm that they're feeling, right? That psychological pain that they feel. It's real. It's going on in their head. They're really feeling the things, right? But they're misunderstanding what direction their their attention needs to be going when when that happens, right? Because if somebody says, you know, so we're talking about the New York Times thing with with McNeil. He said the word in reference to another circumstance where someone else said the word and was he was being asked if that person who said the word in that context should be punished right. for it. So we, we're, we're in this Christopher Nolan multi-level yes. mention versus use distinction thing. <laughs> and it's, I mean, okay, so someone hears the word and they get triggered by it, right? Because they've been the victim of racism before. They've suffered this thing. They've had that word thrown at them with horrible intentions, you know, designed to hurt, to hurt their feelings, to harm them. And they feel that pain. And when they hear that word again, no matter what the context is, they feel those feelings again, right? Totally valid. I get that. But what happens next is the problem. What happens next is they hear that word in a totally different context and they want to treat the person who said that word the same way they want to treat the person who hurled it at them with this malicious intent. And that's the part where we just can't allow that because we're, we're degrading communication to the point where it's impossible. We have to understand that the person in the second scenario did not mean the same thing as the person in the first. And that you have to understand that your feelings about it are separate from that person's intention. Uh, what they meant matters. It does, it's not all that matters. It doesn't mean that you know, the feelings you're feeling are not real. They're real, but you have to contextualize them properly. So th- there's a great example of this that's unrelated to this exact topic, but it's, it's a good one. I heard Penn Jillette tell this story that he heard about a show. These are um, Penn, Penn and Teller, these magicians. They were doing a show, and one of the tricks that they were doing was a water tank thing. So one of them was in a water tank, and the idea is, you know, we're going to padlock it. We're going to tie this person's hands together behind his back, and he's going to try to get out. And... Normally, they put a curtain over the water tank so you can't see the person, however they're figuring out how to escape. But in this case, part of their gag is you can see him. Penn Jillette is just going on and on and on, talking and talking and talking. And behind him, Teller's trick is failing and he's drowning, right? And that's part of the gag, right? You see him drown and slowly just float up to the top of the tank. Now, during this performance, a woman walked out of the theater and she was hysterically crying. And an usher came to ask her if she was okay. And the woman said, my brother died in a, in a car wreck. He, he lost control of the car. He, fell, he flew off of a bridge and he drowned. And seeing that conjured up the exact same image for me in my head. And I just can't take it. And the usher was profusely apologizing. He said, I'm so sorry, ma'am. Do you want a refund? You know, what can we do for you? And she said, no, it's totally fine. Just let me know when that trick is over and I'll go back inside. Now, that is a grown-up. That is somebody who understands context 
and understands right. that even though they're feeling every ounce of pain that they're feeling, you know, they're crying, they're remembering their dead brother, and it's awful. And I feel awful for her in that moment. But she recognizes it's not Penn and Teller's fault. She recognizes that she has no right to tell them not to do the gag, not to do the bit. She, she understands this is all going on in her head and that she needs to mitigate it harsh herself for herself, that it's not anyone else's responsibility, right? And that's how we need to behave, right? I get that that word is loaded for, for many, many people. I get the history. The history is real. It's true. The pain is real. But you have to understand that you're the one walking around reacting to it and you control how you react. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of these people who just says, you know, just walk it off, just take it. It's not that. It's, you have to understand that people mean different things. That word is used in different contexts. Dave Chappelle uses it one way. A racist person in Alabama uses it a totally different way. Kids in high school use it a totally different way. You have to understand these contexts. These things are different. We're, we're being willfully juvenile if we pretend that we can't understand these things. So, you know, that, that's the distinction, I think. The pain is real, and I think people really feel it. But that's not the beginning and the end. That's only the beginning. They have to recognize, okay, now I have work to do. I have to figure out what's going on here. Does this person mean to hurt my feelings? Does this, does this person mean me harm? And if not, okay, I need, to, I need to address this in a different way. So this idea of lived experience, mm-hmm. we used to call that anecdotal evidence, <laughs> but it's right. it, lived experience has more sort of gravitas to it. Uh, yeah. So what you just described, that used to be just this sort of, as you say, adult, personally responsible way to move through the world. You were right. you were aware right. of what was your own personal response and you were able to regulate. You were able to regulate your emotional response and see it uh, and differentiate it from your external uh, conditions. So now we have critical race theory, which is built upon this idea that there, there's very system is based on white supremacy and structural racism. And therefore, your feelings in and of themselves have been put in place by, by a white supremacy. And so therefore, it's not just feelings. You're actually having like a political experience. Yeah. What do we do with that? Uh, I don't know. How do we talk to people in such a way that they can sort of um, see the the limitations of that mindset? Yeah. Well, critical race theory is something that I try not to I try not to even get into because it's another one of those things like cancel culture and wokeness. These these terms get weaponized, and people think they are talking about the same things, but they're not. Depending on what books they've read, it it gets really confusing. So I. Personally, the way I try to engage with it is just focus on what, what's the idea. So what is it that you're saying here? What are the implications you're making? Just you. I'm, I'll worry about what it's labeled later. But yeah, this, it's, just, it's just like you said. Yeah, lived experience matters. You know, I, I, When we're talking interpersonally, we're talking with an individual. We're saying, I get that this is your experience you know, and your experience is real. I'm not discounting it. But if we're talking about policy, we're talking about systems that we want to put in place that were that are going to mitigate things like what you went through we need more data than that we can't just go by what you said and what you think and actually you know there's a lot to be said for the fact that people who are too close to an issue are sometimes the worst people to refer to when you're trying to figure out a solution 
because they're in it. It's hard to see, you know, objectively what's best. And that's why, you know, communication is so important, keeping those lanes open as much as possible and giving people the benefit of the doubt and kind of recognizing that, you know, we're all just trying to figure out how best to do this. We're all just trying to figure out the best way to go forward. And most of us want to go forward. Most of us are trying to make the world better in however, whatever way they're, you know, we understand that. But it becomes more difficult when people start to say, no, you know, objective reality doesn't exist. I, I had an argument once with, with someone, <laughs> someone who was literally denying gravity. You know, she, she literally was denying gravity in my face. I'm standing there. I'm like, wait, no, but you have to understand that if I drop this glass a hundred times, it's going to hit the ground a hundred times unless somebody catches it. And she's like, no, I just disagree. On what grounds did she disagree? She didn't give me any. <laughs> I guess there's no like ground. Like it's a social construct? Yeah, I guess I guess that's what it it's was. It's performing, gravity's merely performing the role of gravity. Yeah, I, I, like I couldn't gender. tell you. I was flabbergasted. I couldn't tell you. That was one of my first um, encounters with this kind of objective reality doesn't exist. Just I, I get to just believe whatever I want thing. Meanwhile, she's speaking English perfectly clearly to me and expecting me to understand because we both have this shared reality that we can objectively refer to. That that didn't occur to her, but... <laughs> have you lost friends over this? Uh, I didn't have very many to begin with. I have a very close... <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, then, the, then you're perfectly positioned to, to take right. up this battle. So yeah, I mean, you know, I try not to be too much of an asshole when I'm talking to people about this sort of stuff. There, there, I'm sure there are people who find me unsavory, um, but I try my best to be kind and and compassionate, and I try not to pick fights. But I also don't just suffer nonsense. So it, I've curated my my friend group at this point. I think anybody who is likely to think me an asshole is gone at this point. I have lost friends now that now that I'm thinking about it. A couple of people that just don't want to talk to me anymore because I made a joke about one thing or another that triggered them. Did it get worse when? Trump was elected or did it change? Um, not for me, not, not personally. I think, you know, I'm not a fan of Trump at all. Very much not a fan of Trump at all. And I, I could see that this was going to be a really big problem. Yeah, I, I think my situation was one where I agreed with everyone about that, but I disagreed with how we're supposed to react and how we're supposed to move forward with this idea. So we all start with, okay, Trump is not a good idea, right? Agreed? Yeah. Okay, cool. And then other people are saying, and therefore, this is what we must do. And I go, whoa, maybe not. Uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of where I was left in the lurch a little bit. So what kinds of things were people saying that must be done that you were not entirely on board with? I mean, the Nazi comparisons, the, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is the beginning of Nazi Germany, you know, all these things. And I, I just... I immediately recoil when people make these comparisons, not only because they're they're insensitive comparisons to make, but also because they're totally inaccurate. Trump is the furthest thing from a Hitlerian, you know, authoritarian. He wishes he could be, maybe. Right. But he lacks right. he lacks he lacks multiple uh characteristics that are required, you know, high intelligence. He I guess he has a kind of charisma. He's, he has a polarizing kind of charisma, but it works on some people. But he, he doesn't he, he doesn't have the resolve. He doesn't have 
the presence of mind. He doesn't have, you know, the the long game. Well, he has no viewpoint. Right. He has no point of view. I mean, actually, it just occurred to me now, like, you know how they always said Trump was a poor person's idea of a rich person? Yes. He's almost like uh, a person who's never lived uh, in an authoritarian society's idea of an authoritarian. <laughs> of, of, right. of a dictator, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's like he's an American's idea of a fascist. Exactly. So we, we wouldn't know. I think that's right. And I'm yeah. sure people would get very mad at me for saying that, but I just, off the top of my head, it seems no. perhaps apt. I mean, okay, so to be charitable, I think it's it's smart to be aware and it's smart to worry that maybe things could could veer that way just kind of on their own. You know, Trump could just kind of get caught in his own wave and it could lead to some some terrible things, and it did. Um, so it's not that um, everyone was completely hysterical. But, I mean, I look at this guy, and I just thought to myself, he, you know, no one, no one, exe- no one else in the world exists except for him in his mind. He's the only thing that matters. He's the only thing that exists. So even, you know, this is a controversial thing that people would get upset with me about. They would call him racist. And I would think to myself, I don't think so. I don't think he's racist because that that requires an ideological standpoint. That requires a worldview. That requires, a, a, ironically enough, a philosophy. It requires a frame of thinking that has multiple steps to it. You know, I believe this, therefore this, therefore that. He doesn't do that. I think he only cares about himself. And he will be racist if it suits him. And tomorrow, if it suits him more to not be racist and to turn woke, he would do it. If if someone showed him some piece of paper saying, listen, you will get reelected tomorrow if you just switch to woke and everyone will just come with you, I bet he would at the very least consider it because I don't think he has any kind of strong conviction about, you know, black people being inferior. I, th- he, I think he thinks everyone is inferior. Yeah. I. You know what? I have to say, now I'm going to get in trouble again. I don't even think he's a sexist. <laughs> I think he's a womanizer. Right. I don't think that there's much evidence that he thinks women are by nature less intelligent, less capable. I think he's mm. happy to use anybody for his purposes. He's an opportunist. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that obviously often manifests in ways that are harmful to women, degrading, uh, dangerous, violent, you name it, go down right. the list. But depending on your definition of sexist, mm-hmm. I, I always just thought he was just an asshole. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sexism is a different thing. Uh, and I know like 99% of people are not going to want to really tease that out. But I've always, uh, that's always sort of stuck in my craw a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm with you actually. Because I think, you know, if he wanted, if he wanted sex from men, if he was just that guy, that kind of guy, he would do the exact same thing. There's no difference to him between men and women in that way. It's just that women have a certain, there's a thing that he wants from women that he will just want, he'll just want to take and he doesn't want them from men. So men are not going to get that behavior from him. But if, if he did, they would. I don't think there's anything stopping him in his mind. He uses people as tools to get the things he wants. Yeah. But you know, as a kind of I, I I believe this, but I kind of try to frame it this way as an olive branch to people who, are, who would get upset by me saying, you know, I don't think he's racist, is I don't think he's racist. I think he's worse than that. Right. Because he's, he, because a racist, you know, 
is someone who has an ideology. There's a framework that they're operating on. So you can kind of understand, okay, well, of course, if I believe the things they believe, I'd be racist too. But he's so much worse because he believes nothing. He just does things when they suit him and he'll change his mind on a dime. So he's impossible to talk to. He's impossible to figure out. He's just this, I mean, he's the Joker. I mean, it's he's just chaos incarnate. He's this this walking hurricane that just destroys everything around him. Right. And that's so much worse. It's so much more dangerous. But people would argue that being a race baiter is tantamount to being a racist. So he has right. galvanized a whole bunch of racist people. He has fomented bigotry. So like it's slippery slope there, I guess. Yeah, sure. And there isn't there's a definition of racism where, you know, if you do racism, you are racist. And it's, it has nothing to right. do with, you know, what's going on in your head. And if you want to use that definition, fine. Um, I grew up with and continue to use the definition that racism is a point of view. And so he doesn't fit the bill for that, in my mind. So what do you think of the concept of anti-racism? Um, well, I can tell you that on its face, it's something that, you know, seems totally uncontroversial. Like, well, yeah, of course I'm an anti-racist. Just like I'm, I'm an anti-sexist, just like I'm an anti-bigot, just like, you know. But of course, you have to get into what that means to the people who are using it. And that's where it gets messy. So that's why I don't use things like that. I don't, um, like, you know, for example, here's another thing we, we can get in trouble with together. Uh, I used to say, <laughs> I used to say, you're either a feminist or an asshole. Because it seemed so just obvious. Like, all right, feminism means you want <laughs> equality for women, Right. Like they should have the same rights and ability and, you know, everything as everyone else. And to the extent that they don't, we need to fix that. So why wouldn't everyone just say, yeah, I'm a feminist? Like, but then, you know, you start hearing from people and you start seeing the, the way other people are using that term. And I had to stop saying that because it's not so clear anymore. Because Some people are saying I'm a feminist and what they mean is they hate men. And well, I don't hate men. I think that's kind of a bad idea. <laughs> so... It really depends. And so, I mean, the same thing with the anti-racist thing, like on its face. Yeah, sure. That sounds good. But once you get into, you know, Ibram Kendi and you, you start understanding what he means and what he's trying to say, well, I agree with you a little bit, but some of your conclusions seem kind of crazy to me. So maybe I don't want to join this club. And um, getting back to my, yeah. my history of not fitting in, I've just decided I'm I'm with Groucho Marx. I don't want to be a part of any club that would have me as a member. So whatever your label, you can call me what you want. You can try to invite me to your to your you know club. I'm good. I'm gonna fly solo. I'm gonna to continue to be a nomad. I'm not gonna take any label. I'm not gonna call myself anything. I'm not I'm not one of the so and so's. I'm just not gonna do it. You're saying you don't want to be in the intellectual dark web? No, I don't even like that. <laughs> You know, it was a funny, cheeky thing to say, but once people started treating it like a group, I was out. I was automatically out because I just know what's going to happen. But it's hard too. I mean, I always say you can't fight tribalism with the tribe and what has now, you know, there's all this sort of the anti-cancel culture people. Yeah. There's sort of a whole lot of us and there's now mm -hmm. there's already, they're starting to be infighting, I've, I've noticed. Um, yeah. But it is... It is hard. And it's, I, I just, again, and I think this, all of this has arisen because it's so hard to resist being part of a group. So much of the social justice, the sort of, you know, 
abuses of the concept of social justice have come about because people I always think are lonely. I always boil it down to loneliness. They want to belong, like you say, to a religion, to a clique, to a team. And it's, it's, it's readily available. Yeah. Especially through social media. uh, If you want to, you know, align yourself to very reductive ideas. Well, so before we finish, I want to make sure we talk about um, a concept you have a term you have coined called star manning. Right. This is a a sort of iteration of straw manning. So, so talk about, talk about uh, what that is all about. So it was new year's Eve and I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw one of my follower, one of my follows, Wilfred Riley, he just tweeted, you know, never, never straw man, always steel man. Um, That was his tweet. And then somebody underneath it just posted the lyrics to that David Bowie song. There's a star man waiting in the sky. He'd like to come and meet us, but he thinks he'll blow our minds. And something clicked in my head and I thought, wow, we need, we need a star man the way that we needed a a steel man. Um, So just to explain the terms really quickly before, before I get into it. Uh, so straw manning is a is a logical fallacy, an argumentative fallacy, where you caricature somebody's argument. Instead of addressing what they're actually saying, you come up with an easier version of it to destroy. So the example that I come up with in my piece is about universal basic income. So somebody says, you know, the job market is changing. Automation is taking taking a lot of people's jobs. Maybe universal basic income is a good way to mitigate that problem. A straw man of that argument, so a way to to reject it by caricaturing it would say, oh, so you just want people to sit around and collect free money, right? Which is not at all what's actually being argued, but it's it's plausible enough that someone who's not paying attention can hear it and think, aha, yeah, that is what this person wants. So it's it's uncharitable. Right. This is a favorite. All pundits like to do this, especially on Fox News, but but all over the place, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know. Scroll through Twitter for two minutes and you'll find one. So that would be a straw man, right? And what you're supposed to do instead is steel man, which is you come up with a version of the argument that is very charitable. It's like basically repeat the argument back to the person you're talking to in a way that they would agree with. And you actually would get bonus points if you can frame it in a way that they actually think is better than what they did. So if you get them to say, yeah, actually, that's even better than what I was saying. That's an even better way to put it. So the benefits of this, obviously, are that, first of all, it's for your sake. You're not, you're making sure that you're actually engaging with the idea that the person is arguing. You're not wasting your time, right? But And you're also showing the other person that you're listening and that you understand, which will make them more receptive to any disagreement you might have about it, right? So for the UBI example, it would be, okay, I get what you're saying. So you're saying is, Automation is taking a lot of people's jobs and our livelihood is so connected to quality of life right now because of the way we have our things structured. UBI would decouple that and it would make it so that even if people lost their job, they don't have to fall into destitution. They don't have to suffer, right? Now, the problem is that I saw is that so many times people are even attempting to steal man and they can't help but straw man because they're not they don't see their opponent as somebody who is on equal footing with them, either morally or intellectually. And so what we're doing is we're not only strawmanning each other's arguments, but we're strawmanning each other. So we're saying, you know, this is an awful, horrible person, and this is their awful, horrible idea. 
And steel manning really only addresses the idea. And so I realized that we need to also address the person. And that's what star manning is. Star manning is, you know, you steel man the argument, but you amend it with an acknowledgement of common ground between you and the person you're speaking with. So you would steel man the UBI argument saying, you know, you want to do this because we want to decouple livelihood from, you know, work from quality of life. We want to make sure people don't fall into destitution because of automation. And the reason you care about this is because you want people to live freer, better, more quality lives. You want people to be happier. That's that's the reason you're behind this entire thing in the first place, right? And I agree with that. I also want people to live more fruitful lives. And so now you're on common ground and you can build your disagreement on that common ground instead of a fault line, instead of it being this ideological you know, battlefield where you must destroy this person. Now you're not enemies at all. You are colleagues just trying to figure out the best way to move forward. And this sounds pie in the sky and it sounds naive to, to a lot of people, but I don't think it is because I think most people, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier in our talk, most people agree. They want a better, safer, more just, more prosperous world for everyone. Well, who wouldn't want that? Very, very, very few people would disagree. So you can take that assumption to the bank. Just take that assumption into every conversation you're having and just say, okay, look, let me try to understand why you think what you're proposing will make the world better. And if I can explicitly state that and you agree with it, now I know, okay, we're on the same page. We both want the world to be better. You think this is the way to go. I might disagree because of this and this, but now we're just talking about details. Now we're just planning a route on our map and I'm saying, no, I think we should go left here. And you're saying, I think we should go right. But the map is the same and our end point is the same. We're all trying to get there. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing with all this infighting among, within the left, especially. We agree on 90% of things. It's the, re- the remaining 10, the battles over the remaining 10% have become so bloody, but it is, it's really like the narcissism of small differences, right? I oh, mean, yeah. That's. It's microscopic at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, what you just laid out there, it's like really, um, it seems pretty unassailable. It seems pretty uncontroversial. I don't see how anybody could interpret that as harmful. And yet you are afraid of being canceled. Like, what are you afraid? Let's like, just, you know, we opened this conversation by talking about what the Harper's letter resonated with you because you you do feel like there will be some sort of professional even personal penalty to pay yeah. if you express these things so like mm-hmm. what would that look like i mean part of the problem is that you know no matter how hard i try to be charitable and compassionate it's not necessarily going to be reciprocated right and if someone is dishonest if someone smears me you know as a racist or a transphobe right I can see that wreaking a lot of havoc on my life. And there are many things, you know, transphobia being one of them, where the accusation is pretty much as bad as the reality, whether it's true or not. You can't get that stink off of you for a lot of people, right? Yeah. And, you know, I guess it depends, but I try to be really, really careful. I try to bulletproof everything I say if I can, but I'm still kind of going out on a limb and I'm still kind of just relying on the fact that the way that I choose to engage, you know, I I do everything I can, especially on Twitter, 
to not be hostile, to not respond to hostility, to not reciprocate it, to actually be more generous than my interlocutor as much as possible. Not just because I believe it will help me in, in case of trouble, but just because I think that's, what, that's the way we should be. You know? and, and I really do believe this Starman thing. I really do believe that the person I'm talking to really thinks that what they're doing is right. And they may not necessarily be cynical. They might not be, you know, twisting my words on purpose. That really might just be the way they're hearing it. And so it's a communication error. So we can work through that. But just as long as you don't think I'm Satan. But if they do think I'm Satan, <laughs> you know, they can do they can do a lot. You know, they can they can email people and try to it's it's rough. But yeah, they, you know. What's the best response to somebody who says, you know, I don't even have the energy to engage with you on this. I'm exhausted. I can't, oh I, I, you know, I, I mean, but it, <laughs> I was very recently in this sort of exchange and I don't mean to, to diminish it because it, it, it's very ripe for caricature, but it does happen. And it's a way of shutting the conversation down. But I don't yeah. like, do you just say, well, I'm sorry that you're tired. Uh, maybe you shouldn't <laughs> have shown up today for this conversation. I mean, I don't want to. What's how do you handle that? I don't uh, I'm trying to remember if I've gotten uh I don't have time to educate you or it's not my job to educate you. Yes, it's it's I I this is so exhausting it's not my job to educate you. Um Google is your friend. <laughs> okay. Well, before there was Google, you know, your friends were your friends and you would sit down and talk with your friend and actually f- figure it out. But yes, okay. Yeah. Uh I mean, I would, I guess I would just say, well, you know, if you ever want to talk about it later, uh, I'm open. <laughs> okay. And, that's, yeah. Good, uh, good answer. I was like, yeah, I mean, you don't have to, right? But, y- you know, we, we're talking about this and I asked you a few questions. Um, if you think it's, you know, outside your pay grade, okay, then we don't have to keep going. But, right. and I, I kind of, you know, it's funny because I was actually telling a couple of people this. I was actually blocked on Twitter for refusing to be hostile. I was some, some, (laughs) well, that'll get you banned from Twitter. Right. Like (laughs) there was this this woman, um, she, she was making a comment on someone else's thread and I asked a question and then she turned her attention to me and it was going back and forth. And her attitude was kind of like, oh, you're amusing, you know, kind of just trying to go to me. And I said, well, I, I mean, I just think you're wrong about this. And, you know, she, it went back and forth a little bit. And then, uh, I just said, well, okay. I mean, that's fine. Um, if you want to feel that way, that's fine. And she's like, no, come on. We were just getting started. You know, like you're, you were so fun. This is so amusing that you think, you know, and she's trying to get me to reciprocate the hostility that she had been spewing at me. And I just said, no, if you're trying to pick a fight, I'm not the guy, you know, I wish you the best. I literally just said, I wish you the Mm -hmm. best. And then I was blocked. Mm. So there, there's a kind of, <laughs> there's a desire for that in people. And I think I disappoint them when I, when I don't get into it. But there's also the thing of curation, right? Where my Twitter looks very different from most people's Twitter. First, I, because I, I, I'm committed to behaving a certain way and to seeking out a certain type of engagement, right? So I seek out people that I disagree with. I, you know, if I see people tweeting stuff and I'm like, I I do not even understand where this person's coming from, I'll follow them and I'll start engaging just because I think it's healthy to constantly be checking yourself. Um, So I'll follow a lot of woke people who I think are good faith. They're not just trying to, you know, bash people, but they really do 
you know, they really, they're, they're really up on the literature and they, they really believe that there's something of substance there. And I'm not at all educated on that stuff. So I'll follow them so that I can hear what they have to say. But my, my little world of Twitter has become this place where people disagree in good faith. They engage with each other charitably. We don't all agree. Some of us are religious. Some of us are very, very, you know, atheist. Some of us are more woke. Some of us are very anti, but we respect each other because after a few kind of skirmishes, we recognize, okay, we're both not trying to hurt the other. We're both just trying to understand. And, and you can do that too. You can curate your Twitter to not be this insane cesspool of hostility. You know, people say Twitter is doomed. People say Twitter is awful. It's only as awful as you make it. I mean, it's a tool just like any other tool. You know, if, how you use it, how you wield that tool is, is important. You know, you can build a house with a hammer. You could bash someone's head in with a hammer. It's up to you. <laughs> There's definitely a better thing well, to do. That's admirable. You are a... Uh more willpower than, than most people. Well, I am so happy to meet you. Is there anything else you want to add? I want to know, I still want to know, like, are you going to be writing books? Like, where do you want to be in this, in this intellectual, uh, space? I hate the word space. My dream would be to write, you know, fiction, to write memoir, to write, uh, essays on interesting ideas, interesting topics. And I'm doing some of that. Uh, already. I'm working on a memoir. Hopefully it'll be done at some point before I die. And yeah, playing music, you know, trying to create art that uplifts and inspires people. I, I, I tell people that my mission is really to pay it forward because there were books and there were movies and there were songs and, you know, pieces of poetry and things like that, that really came into my life at the right time. They profoundly affected me. They changed how I think about the world. They changed, changed how I feel. I learned so much and I grew so much from absorbing this, this beautiful work that sometimes it's from people who've been dead before I was even born. And that's amazing to me. It's beautiful to me. And all I want is to create something that will have that effect on someone else. And then I feel that I will have done my part. So if someone hears a song I wrote, if someone reads a piece I wrote, if someone reads a book I wrote, and they, it has that effect on them, then I'm golden. So that's my goal. That's where I'm headed if I can. Well, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to meet you. And um, oh, me too. I hope you'll come back and talk to me again. Oh, anytime. So. Are you kidding? I'm such a fan. This is, this is a dream, honestly. That was my conversation with Angel Eduardo. He is a musician, photographer, and designer based in New York City. Angel is a staff writer and content creator for Idealist.org and contributes a monthly column for the Center for Inquiry called Searching for Better Angels. You can find out more about him, see his visual art, and hear his music on his official website, angeleduardo.com. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, this is an excellent time to join the Patreon page, which now offers exclusive video conversations with interesting people and even, I can't believe I'm saying this, merchandise. I'll tell you more about that very soon, but for now, you can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and check it all out. This show also has its own website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. 
You can access all the interviews there as well as the merch. Again, more on that later. I hope you will tune in next week. I'll announce the next guests very soon on the website and all the usual social media spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Blinded by love and worlds apart. It's a new season of 90 Day Fiance the Other Way. TLC is shaking up Sunday nights as all the drama heads overseas. Cheating scandals, culture clashes, and even a devastating hurricane won't stop these six couples from following their hearts. With everything on the line, can their love go the distance? 90 Day Fiance the Other Way, every Sunday at 8, 7 Central on TLC. Set your DVR. Sunday! 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 It's the savings event of the season. Progressive's Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Save-a-thon. Your chance to save big by bundling your home and auto insurance. But only this Sunday. 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 Unless you're busy, in which case you can bundle Tuesday. 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 Or if you already have dinner plans, then try Friday. 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 But if the week gets away from you, you can just wait till next Sunday. 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 Because Progressive's Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Save-a-thon isn't going anywhere. 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 Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert, caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art campus in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.